Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What does it mean to be happy? You have a good time, do what your heart says, and make the right choices when the right choices come up. Heart grateful. Music grateful, brain grateful, body grateful. You think gratitude is important for being happy, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have fun, you can't be happy. So don't be rude or mean or hurtful. Don't make anybody feel left out or want to hurt you. Because you can't have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing. If you weren't laughing, you wouldn't be having much fun. If you don't have a sense of humor, it's just not funny anymore. I know that one. Yeah. Do you know who said that? Uh, your old teacher at Skate Lord Camp named Grizzly Bob. <laughs> Skateboard Camp Grizzly Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was wavy gravy. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Daniel Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Hanuman and Liz. Hi, everyone. Hey, Dan. Hey, Liz. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, you might want to start with our EI 101 episode. You can get a good taste for what we discussed in Season 1 by listening to our Season 1 recap episode. That's uh, Season 1, Episode 12, with reflections from the entire production team. I'd also be remiss if we didn't officially welcome the latest addition to our co-hosting team, Elizabeth Solomon! Hooray! Thank you. So super psyched to have you officially co-hosting because you've been doing it with me for these last episodes. It's so great that we can have you on with this. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Hanuman. I'm excited to be here. 
back in season two as a co-host. Um, our listeners are in for a real treat this season. Based on listener feedback from last season, we're going to be shaking things up a bit. Last season, what we did is we explored a topic through three interviews or three perspectives in one episode. This season, we will be exploring a topic each month. So to do this, we'll be breaking up our longer three-act episodes featuring theory, systems, and personal perspectives into individual episodes. And this also means that our listeners can expect a new weekly publishing schedule. Today, we're launching into the first of those three-episode series, where we'll be focusing on the age-old quest for happiness. We'll explore why chasing happiness and superficial and fleeting sources of dopamine hits, such as getting some really cool new possession, acquiring wealth, physical attractiveness, are far less effective than investing in our long-term well-being. I'm curious to hear from you, Dan and Hanuman, what does happiness mean to you? Well, you know, there's a, a big debate between those who say happiness is what counts and you want to be happy as much as you can. And those who say, well, you know, what really matters is fulfilling your sense of meaning in life, your purpose. And you may not always be happy while you're doing that. So it's, it's a, a debate between just a passing state or as many passing states as you can accumulate of happiness, the hits, the dopamine, versus a, a more lasting satisfaction that comes from a sense of purpose. And I think I'm in that second camp, the meaning and purpose camp. Whoa. Yeah. I, Dan, as you were talking, I was feeling the, uh, the real import of what you're saying, because in my own career trajectory, um, I've, I've gone in direction that although I can get behind with my heart, I don't feel like it's really my life's purpose. I think that when you talk about purpose or your, your place, I've been thinking of it as my place in creation because there's a nice balance there for me. Uh, it's not just about me. It's, it's me amidst this sort of eternal becoming, you know, like my, my place in, in it all. And that's when I feel the, the happiness that I want to have. Yeah. I love that you're talking about purpose, Dan, because <clears throat> I've been working a lot with this, um, uh, kind of checking my assumption that my purpose is always my vocation. And I think, you know, in my life, my work is filled with purpose, but trying to break it down to moments outside of work and asking myself, just even in the smalling, smallest moments, does this feel meaningful right now? And, and do I feel connected? And then you're making me think too about something that Laurie Santos actually talks about in our first interview here, which is the difference between being happy with your life and being happy in your life. And it's one of the highlights that stuck with me from this interview, because I think overall, I feel happy with my life. However, there are many moments where I'm not um, happy in my life for a variety of reasons, um, some of which are personal and some of just are what it is to be alive in the world right now surrounded by so much complexity and apparent destruction. So with that, I'm pleased to share our interview with Dr. Lori Santos, who's a professor of psychology and head of Silman College at Yale University, as well as host of the Happiness Lab podcast. Side note, 
Alongside the voice of Dan, you'll also hear the voice of our producer and correspondent, Gabriela Acosta, who took Lori's Science of Wellbeing course, which is the most popular course in Yale's 300-year history and has benefited millions of students on Coursera. Let's launch in. Gloria, I have a question for you. Uh, it's rather obvious, but I think it's fundamental. How do you define happiness? What do you mean by happiness? Yeah, that's a good one. And, and one that, you know, is like super easy, right? <laughs> like a really good, easy softball question to start us off. Um, I actually hide behind other social scientists who I think use a definition of happiness that I think is accurate. I mean, I think it kind of captures what we're thinking about, but it's also easy for social scientists to study. And I think we could get back to whether or not that's the right approach. But social scientists tend to think of happiness as being kind of happy in your life and sort of happy with your life. And so this idea of being happy in your life is just the fact that we have lots of positive emotions, right? You know, happy people tend to experience lots of joy and laughter, not as much things like sadness, anger, and so on, although you want some of that negative stuff there. But so so happiness is in part being happy in your life, but it's also being happy with your life. And that gets to a measure that researchers call life satisfaction. It's just the answer to the question, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? And I think those two parts are important because there are times in our life when they dissociate, right? Uh, I have a, a, a dean in my college where I live on Yale's campus has a new a new baby and you know i think she's really happy she's really satisfied with her life but in her life right now there's like dirty diapers and less sleep and you know so like it's not as good but overall if you're maximizing both of those things you know if you tell me i'm really happy in my life and i'm so happy with my life i'm so satisfied with my life then I'm going to say you're a relatively happy person. And those two things happen to be good measures of happiness just in terms, in, in empirical terms, in part because there's lots of data that we can ask people about those two factors, you know, ask about your positive emotions and ask about your life satisfaction. And we get a lot of great answers that way. So the interest in the course was amazing. You know, it's the most popular ever at Yale. But, uh, you know, there's a, a fundamental question behind that, which is, not just why people are so interested in this. It's, I think it's obvious they want to be happy. But the other is, what are some common myths? What are misconceptions about it? Yeah, I think that's really important because, I mean, again, most of us want to be happy, right? You know, but but I think the problem that the science suggests is that a lot of us are going about it the wrong way. You know, it's not that we don't have intuitions about what will make us happy. We really do. The problem is that those intuitions are wrong. You know, many of us think it's, you know, money and fame and lots of accolades and many, many material possessions and like, you know, a huge house and a huge car. And the data just suggests that that's simply not the case. Some of those things will make you happy for a little while, but mm -hmm. sustained happiness and sustained life satisfaction don't come from the things we often think about. And I think that's really critical. And, and one of the reasons, you know, I've gotten really into teaching the science of well-being is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just that we have to figure out what makes us happy. We have to overcome these incorrect notions if we want to move closer to it. I have to say that this is actually one of the areas that made your course so impactful for me as a student. I was so fascinated with this idea of the these myths that have been perpetuating our culture for so long. I was telling my wife, my best friends, my family members about everything I was learning in the course, and they were equally as fascinated by the idea that 
we should move away from these materialistic ideas of what we believe we should be investing our lives and energy into and more into these internal practices that you were sharing as well. There's lots of parts of the misconception. Part of it is like, you know, what we should be going for. But the other is like how we get there, right? You know, we think we need to change our circumstances to get there. You know, maybe that's not, you know, material possession, but it's like a new love interest or a new job or something like that. And the data really suggests that that's not the case. Again, circumstances work for a little bit for a little while, but they don't lead to the sustaining happiness we think. It's really about our behaviors. And that like, actually is really good news, right? Because if happiness had only to do with our circumstances, you know, some of us would be screwed, you know, some of the time, right? Like our circumstances aren't always under our control. But the good news is our mindsets, our behaviors, for the most part, those are under our control or those are spots where we can take a lot of action. And so it's kind of, you know, the science of happiness didn't have to give us good news. It's just like reality. It could be good or it could be bad. But I think this is a spot where there really is good news. Like you can take much more control than you think. Lori, I'd be interested in your thoughts about a quote from Nietzsche. Uh, Those who have a why to live can endure almost any how. And this was um, a line that helped uh, Viktor Frankl survive through um, years in a concentration camp. It has to do with purpose and meaning in life. And I wonder how you see that uh, in terms of its role in flourishing or feeling satisfied or fulfilled. If you deeply analyze what gives you life satisfaction, it's not circumstances. It's not all the stuff we think. It's having some sense of purpose. You know, so going back to the the example I gave before of my dean and her wife with the her new baby, like you know, it, like that gives you a sense of purpose, right? Like becoming a new mom, like starting a new family, like that allows you a sense of meaning in a way that's different from most things that people experience in life, and that all the dirty diapers in the world can't like take away, right? And so I think that's one thing we forget is you know we're we're, we're searching in these little things, but it really is sometimes about finding things that give us purpose. And often those things that give us purpose are hard. Like they're not easy. You know, they're like kind of, you know, taking care of a newborn baby. They require a lot of work. They cause circumstances that might be uncomfortable. But those are the things that really give us, you know, a deep sense of satisfaction later on. There are many, many things that are upsetting these days. How, how would you advise people to find joy in all of that? Or would you? In the line of work I'm in right now where I'm talking about happiness a lot in the middle of a pandemic, you know, where we're having this conversation, people will say like, you know, how dare you talk about happiness when people are losing their lives or losing their jobs and so on. And I actually think that the research suggests it's even more important to talk about happiness during these challenging times, in part because, again, we get happiness wrong. We assume, you know, you sort out like your health and you sort out your finances and your job and then you get happy. But there's actually evidence for the opposite causal pattern, that happy people at time one are more likely to, say, have an immune function that would protect them against a virus or the kind of wherewithal to, like, be satisfied with their job, which sometimes leads to financial security. Um, You know, some some crazy studies suggesting, for example, that positive mood actually affects whether or not if you're exposed to a a virus, you catch it. These are not necessarily COVID, but like rhinoviruses, which are the viruses that cause the common cold. My read is now it is more necessary necessary than ever to, to, to do some self-care and to worry about our mental health. It might be as important as kind of worrying about our physical health. 
then that raises the question you also asked, which is, okay, then how do we do it? And I think you know, we have some good gauge of how to protect our physical health right now. We should be socially distancing and wearing masks. Like, what do we do for our mental health? And I think there again, we have these bad theories. You know, my my instinct, even though I know this stuff, my instinct is like, run away from the bad stuff. You know, when I look at the news, it's like, I'm going to check social media or get a little quick dopamine hit from, you know, Netflix or something else. And I think one of the counterintuitive things we can do during this time is, is not to try to run away from it is to try to be one with our emotions and kind of notice this stuff give our negative emotions a little space to be um the ironic effect of kind of allowing your emotions to be there is that sometimes they tend to go away a little bit more on their own they, they kind of get the space to express if you recognize them and kind of non-judgmentally sit with them and so i think that's one you know way to kind of deal with the present moment is to actually you know almost like in, as a meditation practice take time to experience negative emotions recognize them like oh that is anxiety. It's, you know, my chest is tight. You know, when I got that email from a friend not realizing how busy I am, that was frustrating. You know, that that kind of uncertainty I'm experiencing when I can't plan my vacation from a year from now, that doesn't feel good. That's uncertainty. Notice it, recognize it, figure out how it affects you and your body, and then have a little self-compassion to do some nurturing. Um, that's another thing that I see in my students all the time that they're kind of missing is, you know, they think they can just sort of trudge through the situation with like no changes. Like, you know, like if I just put blinders on and pretend it's not happening, I can just, you know, have my emotional state go back to the way it was. And, you know, that's just not going to happen. And so allowing some time to nurture yourself is quite powerful. Are some people better at this than others? Is there a set point for happiness? And, and what can you do about it if you're not so good at it? There are some people who are naturally better at some of the habits that lead to happiness than others. The good news, though, is that the data really suggests that, that it's not like it's, these folks are built in to be happy. They just kind of naturally do the stuff that happy people do. They're kind of naturally more social or they're naturally more grateful or they're naturally more other oriented. In other words, they like do good stuff for other people and want to volunteer and stuff. Um, the great news is that if we if, if you're not inclined to be happy, if you're not like, you know, the people who lucked out on the individual differences, you can just copy the behavior of happy folks and you can get some of the same benefits. All of us can do things that are not natural. You know, I'm a like, you know, like like chubby kid who did bad at gym by nature, you know, but these days, you know, I'm trying to like get fit, you know, I'm trying to like learn more yoga and like it doesn't come as naturally to me, but with some work I can become just as fit too. And I think the same thing is true for happiness. Even if it doesn't come naturally to you, that doesn't mean you can't get the same effects as someone who's doing it with a little less intention. We talk a lot about gratitude in the course and how to make it tangible, right? Rather than internally practicing, making it external and sharing a letter, for example, with others. Can you share the re incredible results that you found that folks experience in terms of a uh, reward for writing an external letter of gratitude? Yeah, this is another spot where our minds just totally lie to us, right? And one study by Marty Seligman and his colleagues found that not only do people who share a gratitude letter, say, relative to a control where you write about your happy memories, not only do they feel happier after giving the letter, but that boost in happiness lasts statistically for over a month, at least in one of his studies. You know, you can come back in a month and sort of see that these things last. That's actually the power of gratitude. Like another spot where we sort of get it wrong, I think particularly right now in COVID, you know, and 
with the political situation and everything going on, there's a lot of complaining happening, like in, you know, in person over Zoom meetings on social media. We think that's going to feel good. But actually looking for the silver linings, counting your blessings, just making sure you're expressing that you really appreciate people, you know, in your life, like that actually has much that makes us feel much better than the kind of complaining and kvetching does. Reminds me of research on kindness and compassion, where the person who is kind or compassionate also gets a boost. Do you find that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we think that doing nice things for others is like a transfer, you know, like like I have some amount of like energy or goodness or happiness. And when I do something nice for you, I like give it to you. But it's actually non-zero sum. It's just the opposite. Like by doing something nice for other people, we like maximize both of our happiness. We kind of increase the happiness in the world. Um, and I think we, it, you know, it's easy to have the wrong theory. It's easy to forget that. And that's why the science, you know, points us in the right direction, you know, because when we measure happiness in somebody who say, you know, spends money on themselves and we find like, hey, their happiness isn't as good as someone who spent money on someone else, then you can start to say, huh, maybe I should spend my money differently. Uh, in your podcast, you went back to ancient Greece, to the Buddha. You went to philosophers to look for uh, a framework, I guess, for happiness. What's, what's the relationship, for example, between happiness and flourishing, the Greek concept of eudomania? The ancients kind of had it down. They took a lot of time to, you know, sit around and really think about this stuff with other smart people. Aristotle talked a lot about this concept of eudaimonia, which is sort of a kind of spiritual form of happiness, right? Kind of ha happiness that's about flourishing, that's about living a good life. And part of why he came up with that is that, you know, he wasn't trying to study happiness sort of in this tiny bubble to look at happiness. He really wanted to ask the question, what leads to a good life? What leads to a good life politically? Like what leads to a good state? Right. You know, he was thinking much more broadly. And that actually fits with what gives us happiness. Right. Is that we want to be doing good for other people. We want to be having a bigger purpose and a bigger meaning. He thought that the way you created virtue was through your habits. Um, and his idea was that, you know, just like what the modern science suggests, you know, ha happiness and all good habits that lead to a good life, they take work, right? You actually have to put some energy into them. Um, so really what he thought was that, you know, ha like, you know, people who are virtuous, people who are, say, generous or people who are brave or people you know who are kind or compassionate, they do that by setting up their habits the right way and setting up their situations the right way. So it's not like they're just kind of naturally built to do it. They sort of know the right sorts of behaviors to put in. I think think, you know, in terms of like true flourishing is doesn't feel like one of those extreme hedonic states, like true flourishing actually feels like almost like a state of peace. Right. And so, you know, can you have too much peace? Like probably not. So I think if you're using the kinds of definitions of happiness that social scientists really use, where, where it kind of includes this sense of satisfaction with your life, you know, it's hard to get too satisfied there. Ultimately, happiness seems to rest on being really other oriented. Right. Like it, it's hard to Every available study of happy people suggests that happy people are social. They're connected to other people. They're connected to their community. I think you can't really be happy without involving other people. One of the observations these days in the political and social climate is that people live within bubbles. And there, could there be a bubble which other people see as uh, unpleasant or evil even? 
and where people feel socially connected and fulfilled and they have a common purpose. One of the episodes of our podcast, we really kind of look at this, of like this question of is empathy getting worse? You know, given that we're in this political situation where it's really easy to completely write off, you know, the other side. And, you know, another natural tendency we have to be kind of xenophobic or very in-group, very into our tribe, as it were. Um, and, but the, again, there are interventions that we can use to kind of get beyond that. You know, it, they often involve increasing the emotions that we use to connect with people, things like increasing compassion. Um, so people who do things like engage with a compassionate meditation, what's often called metta, um, where you really try to like almost like you exercise by lifting weights, you know, to improve your arm strength, you sort of exercise by feeling compassion to bump up your compassion. Um, those kinds of things can really connect us with people across the aisle. Um, another thing, you know, there's the, the, it's hard to connect with people across the aisle. The Dalai Lama talks about what he calls the oneness of humanity, recognizing, uh, in fact, he says, I'm not the Dalai Lama, I'm just a simple monk. I'm just another person. Is that a kind of reframe that can be helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think th this is another spot where I think we get it wrong. You know, we, our instinct is to really be selfish. You know, even we have in terms right now, you know, self-care and treat yourself. You can get these pillows with treat yourself, right? Um, but I think part of the insight is that the way we treat ourselves is to be other oriented, right? Like, you know, when you start focusing on other people, your own needs kind of dissolve. Um, and there's some counterintuitive empirical effects. One is that, you know, as you start helping others, you end up seeing yourself as having more time. So, you know, so even if you're spending your time volunteering, which you might think would make you feel kind of more time strapped, you actually see yourself as having more time. You know, the act of giving money to, you know, a good cause can sometimes lead you to suspect like, hey, I have more. Like there's this, again, we assume that like, you know, that there's this transfer, it's like a zero sum game, right? But in fact, it's, it's, it's not, right? It's this way that we can kind of build up more, more happiness, more resources than before. But you did a podcast on idleness and the value of idleness. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the difference is that idleness, you know, you could think of idleness as a case of being kind of, you know, distracted, right? But I think idleness often has a certain quality, which is kind of a focused paying attention to things, not something that you have to do or not something that's work or not something that's busy, but a kind of focused time to like, you know, take the scenic route, you know, notice, like read a book off the shelf that you weren't planning to do, right? It allows for a certain, a few things that are helpful. One is just sort of serendipity. I think another is presence. Um, but a third is just it turns out our brain is just tracking how much free time we have. Um, and when we feel like we don't have any free time, when we feel like what, we're, what, what researchers call time famine, that feels really awful. Um, in fact, Ashley Willens at Harvard Business School has evidence that if you self-report feeling very time famished, you have as much of a well-being hit as if you self-report being unemployed. Like it's that, it's that much of an effect on your well-being. Well and so she advocates not just idleness, but all kinds of things we can do to sort of trick our brain into thinking we have a little bit more free time um, or what, what she refers to as time affluence, the sort of feeling of wealth in time. A completely different topic, but probably related. You, you mentioned, or you focused, I think, in a podcast on the reluctance of people to step up and speak out against unfairness, injustice. I, I was thinking of a book called The Roots of Evil. I don't know if you know it, Irv Staub. He's a social psychologist who himself was saved from the Nazis by Roe Wallenberg as a kid, uh, he devoted his life to seeing why people don't speak out, don't say something. 
And he said that the worst thing is that the silence looks like you assent, you agree with the perpetrator, when in fact you may not. What did you find in your exploration of the reluctance? Yeah, we we were building this out of some work, you know, again, showing that, you know, empathic uh, behaviors can make us feel really good. Doing nice things for others can make us feel really good. And, you know, one of the predictors of unhappiness in a society is the level of inequality, right? You can be a really wealthy nation, but if you're an unequal nation, people are going to take the hit on, on in terms of well-being. And again, that's like across the whole culture. And so we thought, you know, well, why are more people not stepping up and speaking out about injustice? And again, you know, just like with some of the happiness work we talked about before, before, this is a case where our minds are lying to us. You know, if you're the member of a, ma- a majority group, let's say you're a white person and you hear, say, a racist slur or something, you feel like, well, I shouldn't really step up. Maybe it's not my place. Maybe you feel kind of anxious about it because it is, you know, anxiety provoking to kind of jump in. Um, and what we explored is that, no, 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 you really should in part because it will make you feel better, but in part because if you're from a majority group, the data suggests that you'll be more effective at calling out that sort of either racial slur or bad comment or something like that, um, the person will hear it better from you and you're more likely to change their actions and their thoughts in the future simply by being a member of a majority group. And so in some ways, we, we really explored this idea that, you know, you're, you're going to be more effective, right? Not only is it kind of a pain for the person from the minority identity group to do it, but you're actually going to be more effective if you kind of jump in. And so we really made the case that scientifically speaking, you know, it makes a lot of sense to jump in and be an ally, both in terms of its effectiveness, but also in terms of your well-being. It seems to jive with a, another podcast you did on good habits, forming good habits, uh, which means also getting over your bad habits to some extent. What are some points you can give folks? Yeah, well, one thing is to recognize the power of habits. I think we 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 like really love a different way to get over our bad habits, which is willpower. You know, we put willpower next to godliness. You know, if I have some bad habit, you know, I'm going to stop biting my nails or I need to get up and exercise. It's like, well, I'm just going to get willpower and do it. Um, turns out willpower sucks. It's much more fragile than we think. Um, we can't harness it in in challenging times, especially like we're all facing right now. It's the first thing to go. What sticks is the kinds of things that we habitually do. You know, things can be really frantic, but I'm still going to remember how to drive, you know, really implicitly. My brain's just going to know how to do it. And the idea is that we should try to do that with other habits that we want to promote in life. Um, You know, set up a good cue so you're kind of like linking it to something. You know, when I get in my car, I know, you know, close the door, put the seatbelt on. It's just a kind of cue that I have. What can be the cue for me to get up and go to the gym in the morning? What can be the cue that I use to remember to scribble in my gratitude journal or text a friend? You know, when I have a break from the end of Zoom meeting, um, do that cue. And then once you repeat it a lot, the, the ease with which it comes into your brain is really quite natural. So there's the cue. There's also the sequence that you enact once the cue comes. And as you say, if you do that enough, I guess technically it goes into the basal ganglia, it becomes automatized. It, it's uh, the link between the cue and the sequence is maybe where a lot of us fail. Yeah. And I think in the last link, which is the sort of cue sequence, and then the classic thing is, and the reward, I actually think part of it is that we don't notice the reward of this stuff, right? Um, you know, in part because we're not present, right? You know, I maybe like really express thank to a coworker or have this nice connection or, you know, take time to just kind of breathe in, breathe out in a nice, you know, meditative moment. And then I'm off to the races, you know, working on stuff. I don't take time to notice like, hey, hang on, like, how did that actually make me feel, right? And your brain has to notice the rewards. You know, there's 
there's certain rewards like, you know, a hit of cocaine that, you know, my brain's going to notice it. I don't have to consciously be there. But a lot of these sort of more ephemeral rewards, we really do need to take time to notice, to, to get our system to get like, oh, like this is good. Um, I used to have this wonderful uh, yoga teacher back at pre-COVID times when we could go to yoga studios who at the end of a really hard practice, she was such a tough teacher when you're in Shavasana lying there, he'd say, take a moment to notice how your body feels right now after you did yoga. And that was like, wait a minute, this feels awesome. Like I need to kind of add that in. What about yourself? Looking at happiness and looking at all the research, what have you learned? How has it changed you? Oh, it's changed me a ton. I was not a like naturally like heritably happy person, honestly. And I tend to have really, really bad uh, habits about this stuff. Um, but when you learn it, two things happen. Again, once you learn it, you're like, okay, the evidence is good. I should just, even if I don't believe it, I should spend a half hour doing this instead of that. The second thing though is like, I kind of have to practice what I preach. So it has had a tremendous impact on my happiness. Um, my standard scores on, you know, both like happiness in my life and life satisfaction have gone up like at least one to two points on a 10 point scale. You know, I wish I knew about the power of habits much earlier because I would have, you know, had my yoga habit from when I was 10 years old. And so I think all of these concepts are things that kids and especially, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers are really curious about. And I think they don't really have great, you know, ways to learn. And I think this is sort of a problem of us moving towards a more secular, you know, schooling system and a more secular culture in general is like, you know, some of the ancient traditions not getting in in the same way, right? And then they have the opposite of the ancient traditions, which is like, you know, modern day advertising, which is like totally happy to reinforce all these misconceptions we have that material wealth and accolades are the way forward. Um, and so our goal is to really get this content out to, you know, kids in whatever way possible. You know, the idea is to just teach this stuff to people earlier because because they, they crave it and they understand it when you give it to them. Um, and they sometimes realize the irony of it. I've you know, had this experience of you know, giving a short version of my class to high school students who sometimes get really angry afterwards. They're like, you know, my teacher brought you in here and you're saying, you know, grades don't matter and accolades don't matter and money doesn't matter. Like, that's not what I learned the rest of the 364 days of the year. And so I think, you know, putting some breaks on what modern culture is teaching us um, might help some of these misconceptions, too. You know, Lori's interview makes me think a lot about the things in my life that seemed hard, but which inevitably made me really happy. And then times in my life when I saw, thought certain things were going to make me happy, and um, to my surprise, they didn't. Particularly, you know, as a woman in this culture, I lived a lot of my life thinking that physical beauty was the key to happiness, a certain kind of idealized form of beauty. Um, and that uh, has proven itself to not be true. I was thinking a lot about growing up in the 80s, looking at Seventeen magazine <laughs> and all of these images of young women that were advertised to me as to all of us in America, specifically and, and really around the world. Um, around thinness, around whiteness, around a particular aesthetic, and thinking about the immense amount of pressure and pain that I felt as a as a teenager to fit into a certain bodily ideal, and then put myself on a path to achieve that ideal through means that were not always healthy and sometimes torturous. 
came to a place in my life where I felt somewhat closer to that kind of idealized version of beauty, only to find that the way the world interacted with me, which was as a sexual object, was um, deeply disappointing. I think physical attractiveness or fitting into these physical ideals, um, it's a privilege that we don't talk about. It's a form of currency in the world that is not always discussed, but is, is prevalent. And yet, for me, I found it changed my ability to build platonic relationships. Um, and that was a surprise for me and, and deeply disappointing. Hanuman, has there been a time in your life when you thought something was going to make you happy and then it turns out it didn't? And what was that thing? Holding on. There have been so many moments when I, it, it doesn't matter what the object was that I was clinging to, but it was the act of holding on to it uh, that, that I thought was going to make me happy. And as soon as I am able to release whatever it is that I'm clinging to, there is such a sense of freedom. And that, without fail, that brings me a real joy and, and happiness. But the subtle joy of cultivating trust with my, my partner and with my children between in my relationship with my children and with my parents and repairing the, the relationships that inevitably through parenthood and childhood uh, get confused. And, and like, these are the things that I find really bring me joy and happiness. I can really resonate with that. I, for many years, wasn't even sure if I wanted to have children. And now I find myself um, having one of my own and my partner has three. I find myself with four kids. And that was like an unexpected <laughs> kind of form of happiness for me. Um, Cause I always kind of positioned myself as someone who wanted a big career and wanted to travel and wanted to do a lot of things that weren't conducive um, to family life. So I can really resonate with that. And I'm thinking a little bit as we're talking too, as you're talking about letting go of things, I'm thinking a little bit about um, the tension I feel in myself between adaptability and achievement orientation. If we're going to sort of think through the lens of emotional intelligence here, which is these moments in life when I am so directed towards a goal and I can't see that the winds have changed or the circumstances have changed. And I have a really hard time letting go, right? Um, because that, that hyper-focus on the goal is so present for me. Dan, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I'd love to hear. Yeah, I was thinking of moments in my life where I was pursuing something I thought would be great and I'd feel really happy when I got there, but then, ooh, turned out not to. One was getting a PhD in clinical psychology. I thought, wow, you know, I pursued that for years and years and years. And then it turned out by the time I got there, I actually wasn't interested anymore in treating patients. In fact, I'd gone to India and lived there for 15 months. And I was much more interested in uh, meditation and kind of a spiritual dimension that was absent in the clinical psychology I'd learned. And so what was more meaningful for me and more satisfying, and I guess gave me that deeper happiness, was somehow trying to translate that for 
psychology and for the West generally uh, as a, an option in reality. And that wasn't in the cards at all. It, uh, in fact, I needed to do a kind of career pivot to make it possible. What was that letting go like for you? Because that's a big that's a big change. That's your entire life up to that point, and then you had to come to terms. I didn't experience it as a letting go so much as a going toward. Mm. What was pulling me was so much more satisfying than what I was leaving behind. That makes it easier. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> to let go. You know, there's so many sayings here about the path is the destination is kind of the, uh, the saying that's coming to mind of these moments when mm -hmm. we're hyper-focused on a destination. And actually, it's really about the path and the ways that the path can fork to lead us somewhere totally different. I, I'm thinking of something Laurie Santos said about why her course was so popular at Yale. It's the most popular course in the history of Yale. She said it was, she thinks it's because so many people at Yale had to give up what really was satisfying to them in order to get into Yale in the first place. And they wanted to recapture that somehow. And notice it's her course is really about well-being, not about happiness. Uh, she puts down uh, those temporary hits of happiness that are the most seductive. You know, advertising is built on what's going to make you happy. This dress, that car, this house, whatever. But actually, none of those things really make you happy. It depends on something inside you that uh, the externals really don't matter that much for. We're going to get a bit deeper into this concept in part two of this three-episode series. The next episode features consumer psychology expert Natalie Nahai. Stay tuned for that next week. We love to hear from our first-person plural listeners and the young people in your lives. What makes you happy? Has our conversation today shifted your understanding in any way? What are your thoughts or questions from today's show? For a chance to hear your voice on a future episode, send us a message using our SpeakPipe app at firstpersonplural.com. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Sujata, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Dr. Lori Santos. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, Check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music includes Tiny Footsteps in the Snow by BioUnit and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well.
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.